So in the Old Testament, there, there are two principles that we have to lay down before we can really uh, dig into to this text, because there's two things that we need to understand. In the book of Hebrews, the Bible says in Hebrews 1.1, Long ago and many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. In the Old Testament, what would happen is, is that God would appoint someone and say, this person is my spokesperson. And this person would have the authority to stand in front of his people and say, thus says the Lord. And those people would have to follow and obey. God spoke directly through prophets. Now, what is to keep someone from being a false prophet? What's to keep someone who has a, uh, a you know, really outgoing personality, somebody who has a, a dynamic way about themselves, what's to keep them from just making it up and saying, I'm a prophet, and then saying whatever they wanted to say? say saying, you know, I, we joked in here a few months ago, there was a, one of the... the our false prophets that we have living in our day who, you know, is making big money. He, he went to hit the leaders in his church and said, God has given me a vision and God has told me that you are to pay me $600,000 a year. So what's to keep somebody from doing that? Clearly, people do that all the time. I mean, I'm going to got to say that if God's going to give me a vision, I sure is, do hope that it's a vision of me getting more money. I'd like to get that vision. In fact, I, I sometimes I'll see people drive by and, and in one of those new Jeeps, you know, that's got the big tires and everything. I say, I feel God leading my church to buy one of those for me. I strongly feel the Lord leading us as a church in that direction, right? Philip was telling the deacons that we're going to bring some of the, the guys who have older, older uh, classic cars and park them out front just so that as people drive by, they go, hey, what's going on in there? Maybe we can trick them into getting in here and, and going to church. So if somebody wanders in looking for the car show, just point them to a seat and say, we'll get with you afterwards. And, and when he announced that to the deacons, I said, you know what? I feel like if we're going to do that, and I, I like the direction you're going, that we need to buy me a 69 Roadrunner so that I can serve Jesus with a 440 Hemi. <laughs> Amen, brothers. <laughs> I mean, I, I feel like we should start a hunting ministry, and I feel like this church should provide me. With, with some gear. I, I just feel the Lord. So what's to keep somebody from doing that? What's to keep somebody from predicting things that isn't going to happen? Well, God protected his people from that by setting down a rule and a principle. And the principle is, uh, and, and uh, we had that read to us in the text earlier, whoever will not listen to my words in Deuteronomy 18 that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require of him, it of him. So way more important than money is God is saying, if I give somebody a word that comes from me and they speak it to you and you don't obey and you don't listen, I'm going to require you and hold you accountable for that. I need to know then who is speaking God's word and who's making it up. So we have a litmus test. The prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know that the word that the prophet, uh, that the Lord has not spoken? 
When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, then that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. So what the text is saying is, if a prophet of God comes and says, you need to go do this, this is what you need to do, and you don't do it, then I'll hold you accountable. And then the text anticipates the question, well, how do we know who's of God and who isn't? It can't be what's in our heart. We know that. The Bible tells us that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? There are lots of people who are super dynamic folk who say lots and lots of good stuff that we think, surely this is from God. How can those Old Testament people know that it's from God? Well, God makes it really easy. If they say that something's going to happen and it doesn't happen, then he's a liar. Because if he's saying it's from me, and it doesn't happen even one time, take him out and kill him because he's a liar. So if Elijah had come up and said, you know what, it's not going to rain for seven years, it's not going to, nothing, it's not going to rain. And then a year and a half into it, there was maybe some little sprinkles. He was lying. But no, the real prophets of God, what they predicted, what they said would happen, happened. And see, why that's important is oftentimes those prophets would make prophecies of stuff that happened long after they died. So how do we know that when a prophet says, Oh, Bethlehem, you're the smallest of cities, but from you something's coming. How do we know that when Moses prophesied and said in this same passage, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb uh, on the day of the assembly when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God. And the Lord said to me, you are right in what you have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth. How do we know that the prophecy of Moses here is actually going to come true? Because the near-hand prophets, prophecies, the prophecies about the stuff that people could see, if those come true, then we know that what he said is going to happen later is going to come true. So that's the litmus test. That's the test that God gave his people to use. So that's one principle that we have to understand as we walk into the transfiguration. The second thing that we have to understand is uh, 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 some, some stuff concerning the law. We've got to know this to really understand what's going on. I, I'm going to get really boring here for a minute. I'm going to have to get all teachery. I feel like I should have a whiteboard. But, um, okay, we have the law. We have it preserved in the Bible. I bet that you've heard somebody say something like this on TV. You know, Christians are picky and choo- picking and choosing what they believe about the Bible. They say that they believe that homosexuality is wrong, but I see them eating barbecue sandwiches. They pick and choose what they like and don't like out of the law. They say that, that we're supposed to obey this part, and then this part we can ignore, that they're intellectually, that they're, they're just mixing things up. Have you ever heard that on TV? You ever seen that on TV? You ever seen somebody... Um, on late night talk shows, make fun of, of Christianity, say, oh, they say we can't do this, but boy, they sure do do this. You can't go to a church social without getting a barbecue sandwich. I like pork. How come is it, how come is it, is that the, that's not the right way to say this. 
Why is it? Uh, why is it that we do seemingly to someone that doesn't uh, really know a lot about Christianity, we seem to pick and choose? Okay, so the law, there are three aspects of the law. The law that we've given, you've got to realize, is in the nation of Israel, they didn't have a constitution, they had the law. So let's look at each three. The, the first thing is the moral law. Now, the moral law, we still fall under that. Thou shalt not kill. You know what? We don't kill. That's, the moral, that's a part of the moral law. You don't commit adultery. That's a part of the moral law. Don't steal. That's a part of the moral law. There's a part of the law that's the moral law that is eternal. It never changes whatsoever. It's always wrong to kill some, to murder somebody. Always. No matter what's going on, if you murder somebody, that's bad. Just letting you know. I, I know we're, we're, we're drawing a line in the sand and we're, we're taking a stand on some hard principles here. But murder's wrong. Always. Adultery, always wrong. Stealing, always wrong. So there's the moral law. There's the ceremonial law. There's the part of the law that says um, before a priest comes before the Lord, he's got to do this kind of sacrifice. When he comes before the Lord, he's got to wear this kind of ephod, this kind of robe, and he's got to put on this kind of, kind of outfit, and he's got to touch his big toe with some blood and some oil on his forehead. And there's all this stuff that you've got to do that's the ceremonial law. And that's all throughout the, the, the law. Now, we don't follow that stuff. If you uh, offend somebody, there's, there's a sacrifice of a turtle dove. I think it's two turtle doves if you offend somebody. So if, if, if somebody in the church were to offend somebody else and you guys are sideways with each other, you don't come to me and bring some pigeons that you caught downtown and I'm going to cut their heads off down here at the altar. In fact, technically speaking, this isn't really an altar. These are steps. I don't know if anybody's ever told you that, but uh, we don't bring uh, flour in here and call that a grain offering, right? Because that's the ceremonial law. Now, we know that we don't follow the ceremonial law anymore because it's fulfilled in Jesus. It was something that was saying something is coming. Every aspect about the ceremonial law is pointing to Jesus. So... If I put signs up all over town saying that in December we're going to have a women's tea, in January I don't keep putting the signs up. The event's already happened, right? It's the same thing with the ceremonial law. It's screaming that a lamb without blemish is coming to make atonement. We don't need that anymore. In fact, the Bible tells me in the book of Colossians, That these things are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And so that ceremonial law isn't been done away with. It still shows us the character of God. It still reflects the nature of God. But we don't have to do it anymore. Jesus has fulfilled it. Jesus said, I didn't come to destroy the law. I came to fulfill it. All right, so the third part, so we have the moral law, we have the ceremonial law, and then we have the national law. The law was given actually as the, the rules, it was the penal code for the nation of Israel. So it has stuff in there like, uh, if your neighbor moves his uh, property boundary three feet to the left, what do you do? If you have a cow and it gets out and gores somebody, what are the consequences? What's the penalty for that? 
No different than if you go down here to Glencoe, there's some codes, probably more than three or four, that say things like, hey, if you cross the center line at this point, do this, this is going to be the penalty for that. I mean, it gets into detail in, the, in the, the national law. It tells us that if you get a cow that gets out and gores somebody, here's the consequences if it's never done it before, and you're going, oh my gosh, I can't believe that happened. And here's the consequences if you're just sorry and it's done it before and still keeps getting out. I mean, it gets into detail. And inside of that law, that national law, there's a rule to protect the people of Israel. Because here's what could happen. There are a lot of laws in their national code that the consequences are death. We're not Israel, so we don't follow that. Did you know that one of the consequences for an unruly, disobedient child who refuses to obey their parents is take them out and stone them? Guess what? We don't do that. We don't do that now because we're not the nation of Israel. We're not a part of the theocracy. And I'm not going to make any comment to the appropriateness of that in the American legal system. (laughs) To keep and protect them, there's a rule that's laid down that says that on, in Deuteronomy 19.15, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or any wrong in connection with any offense that has been committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall a charge be established. Now what that means is, I can't go to the court and, and say, I saw David disobeying his daddy, so we should haul him out and stone him. There has to be at least two witnesses, preferably three, to any event for it to be established that that's what really happened. That's the law, that's the precedent. Now, that's the background that we had to understand about the Old Testament before this story makes any sense. And I'm going to tell you, here's something strange. I was talking with Chad about this this morning. If you read commentaries that were written after about 1800, the transfiguration is maybe takes a page or two. It's just like, oh, yeah, there was that thing that happened, and yeah, that was the thing. Um, if you look at commentaries written during the Reformation all the way back to the pre-Nicene fathers, they thought the transfiguration was a huge deal. It was the biggest thing that happened. Almost as important as the resurrection, way more important than the birth narrative. They felt like the transfiguration of Christ was huge, and yet we today, we miss it. Part of the reason why we miss the significance is we don't understand those two principles. So I apologize for the boringness of it. Uh, Maybe I'll tell you a story later to, to make up for it. All right, so let's get ourselves up with the story that's going on here. Not one of my crazy stories about dogs or anything. Yes, I know. I've been told by several ladies, please don't ever tell dog stories again as long as you shall live. Uh, So I'm, I'm done. I'm done with dog stories. Okay, so we know that when they were praying, the disciples and Jesus, Jesus asked them, who do people say that I am? And that Peter responded, you are the Messiah. You are the Christ. You're the anointed one of God. And so Jesus from that says, and again, we we talked about how Luke is driving toward Jesus has the right to be king. Jesus has the right to be uh, a prophet. Jesus has the authority to be the high priest. And yet Jesus completely ruins the story by saying that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. 
So the story is driving toward Jesus taking up a sword with his boys and going and overthrowing the Roman government. And then Luke builds to this point and then yanks the rug out from under us when Jesus goes, nope, instead I'm going to die. And then Jesus takes it even further. He'd already said, I'm going to die. Now he says to them, and he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Now, don't get lost in religious Christianese on this. When Jesus says, take up his cross, there is no religious connotation to the cross at all. Nobody would have thought of wearing a cross around their neck. No different than I would never consider wearing a... Um, uh, we already had this conversation, what did, and I couldn't think of it then. Yellow Mama around my neck, the, the electric chair that's down in Kilby. It just meant death. And so when Jesus said, deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow me, what he's saying is, I, and he just finished saying, I'm going to die. He looked at his followers and said, and you are going to die. In fact, unless you're ready and willing to die you're not worthy of me. So you got to picture the scene. Peter just said, Jesus, you're the Messiah. You're the sent one from God. And Jesus said, I'm going to die. And you boys are going to die. And then he says something that's completely unexpected. The plot twist is taken to the different level. Jesus says, for what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and the holy angels. Wow! All right, now think about what Jesus just said. He's saying, I'm going to die. All y'all are going to die. If you think that you... Living for this life is going to count. You're wrong. If you fight for this life in this world, you're going to lose it. But, and this is the very first mention that Jesus ever has in his teachings in Luke. He says, but I'm coming back. And if you don't deny me on this earth, we're going to rule together. Not over this kingdom, but all the kingdoms. Not just over Palestine and Israel, but over the whole world. And when I come back, and notice he doesn't just say, in my glory, but in my glory and in the Father's glory and with the holy angels, we're going to rule. Wow! So Luke here, as he's telling this story, just plot twisted. He juked to the left and said, nope, I'm going to die. You're all going to die. And you know that all those disciples were going you got to be kidding me this is not what I signed up for that was not in the recruiting literature here and then he takes this and goes boom over here and says in fact it's going to be way better than you could ever imagine if you could hold the line while you're here so here Jesus makes a prophecy about something that's going to happen way off in the future 
How will those disciples know that what Jesus said he would do, he actually has the power and authority to do? Remember when we started out, the litmus test of a prophet. So, Jesus makes a near-hand prophecy, something that they could see happen so they could verify that Jesus is telling the truth. And what Jesus said was, I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. So he's sitting there here, he says, I'm coming back with the angels, with the glory of the Father, I'm coming back and I'm going to rule. I'm going to rule this earth. And he's using all kinds of imagery from the Old Testament. I'm going to be the anointed one of God. I'm the son of David that the Lord said to my Lord, sit on my right hand. I'm coming back. And you know what? Some of you folks right here who are listening to me now, you're not going to die until you see what I'm talking about. So, then, about eight days later, it didn't take long, about eight days after he said these things, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up to a mountain to pray. So he didn't just take Peter, he took Peter, James, and John so that there would be three witnesses. So that there was legal verification that what's being said here is accurate. So him and the three witnesses go to the mountain. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. And when they became fully awake, they saw his glory. And the two men who stood with him and the men were parting from him. Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Not knowing what he said. I love that the text here throws that in here. Uh, Peter's being a little dumb. He didn't even know what he was talking about. And, and as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And there's some, there's some pronoun problems here because of the translation into English. Okay, so the cloud, cloud came and overshadowed them, which would be Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, and James, and Peter, and John. Okay, so that was your crew. The cloud came and overshadowed them, then Peter, James, and John, no, no, you're wrong. It, it wasn't Peter, James, and John. They're not in the cloud. See, you messed me up now. All right, so let's get our pronouns straight. So Peter, James, and John are asleep. Jesus and Moses and Elijah are over here talking. They're talking about Jesus' death. They're verifying that what Jesus has to do, that shocking information, is going to come a pass. They're talking about him having to go to Jerusalem, that the plan is working out exactly the way God predicted it. They're over here talking. Here's Peter, James, and John over here napping. They start waking up. They look and like, ah! And then the cloud comes and overshadows them, Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. They are really afraid, but the cloud's not overshadowing them. And as they were afraid, they entered the cloud. It's just some pronoun problems. It's really clear in the Greek. It's, it, in English, there's just too many days. Sometimes I say to my kids, okay, I, there's too many she's here. I don't understand what you're talking about. It's like that. Okay, so... So the cloud covers Jesus, Moses, Elijah, 
And so then Peter says, okay. So, and as the men were parting from there, Peter says to Jesus, Master, it's good that we're here. The cloud came, overshadowed them. They were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice was spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent, and no one in those days anything about what they had seen. In fact, in another passage, that Jesus tells them, don't, until I die and rose again, don't tell anybody that this happened. All right. So next week, we're going to look at this text again, and we're going to go through. There's so much imagery here of... Elijah, who represents the prophets, and Moses, that represents the law, standing there worshiping Jesus, and and the fact that the light comes out of him. But for today, what I want us to see is that, first of all, that Jesus' prophecy that he's coming back is verified through the fact that something that someone saw, Jesus predicted would happen, happened. So that's the seal of the prophet that we see in the book of Deuteronomy, that the text is telling us that Jesus is telling the truth. Which is important to us today because today, Maranatha, Lord, come quickly. I need to know that I can believe he's coming back. That as I look at this world, as it seems to be spiraling downward, out of control, and I watch the TV and I go, what are they even thinking? For the love, what is this about? And it seems like every time I watch the news, we come up with some new way to sin. I just saw an article about polyamorism, about how we shouldn't be judging people that decide to have three and four husbands and, or three and four wives. And my goodness, we've, we're sliding down the slippery slope. Amen. And the world is getting more and more wicked and evil. And we see videos of, of idiot people who are kidnapping children who are mentally retarded and taking them off and beating them to death and recording them and putting it on Facebook. And you go, what is happening? But you know what? This is not new. There is nothing new under the sun. Mankind left to himself always trends toward wickedness and evil. And so what we need to know more than anything is that he's coming back. This world ain't your home. Sometimes we get so wrapped up in what's going on around us that we forget this ain't our home. When I'm watching the football games on Saturday, now primarily I'm saying, Oh Lord, let Alabama and Auburn win so that people don't lay out of church on Sunday." Because when one of those teams loses, their fans are walking around here like, Oh, Lord, we had a 20-point lead. (laughs) Well, we ain't got to talk about Tennessee anymore because do they they even still have a football team? I don't even know. (laughs) This world is not our home. So we get so wrapped up in the things that are going on. During the election cycle this last time, I was so frustrated with other people and myself with how glued to what's happening we were becoming. As if Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton was going to be our savior. It didn't matter who's in the White House. We need to vote our consciences. Consciences? 
our conscience, apostrophe, see the apostrophe? We need to vote what we believe. I'm not saying that different than that, but I'm saying a president is not going to save us ever. No matter who's president, that's not going to save us. Doesn't matter who gets appointed to the Supreme Court, that's not going to save us. It doesn't matter who Auburn gets as a coach after Malzone's fired, that's not going to save us. Jesus is Lord. And we need to know that what this text is screaming is A, that there's truth in the fact that if you aren't willing to lay down your life and die for Him, if you don't give up your hopes, your desires, and lay it all at the cross, then you're not a believer. That's what being a Christian is. And then if you're not willing to take up your cross every day and follow Him, you're not worthy of Him. And we need to know that no matter what happens on the TV, no matter what happens in the doctor's office, no matter what happens in the polls, no matter what happens on the football field, no matter what happens, Jesus is coming back. And this world is not our home. In fact, in the book of Revelation, as we see the end of the story, we read this. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like the flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule with a rod of iron. And he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written. King of kings and Lord of lords. He's coming back. Father God, we pray that everybody in this room is ready to meet their king. And that we are ready to serve him with everything that we've got. Lord, I pray that this morning in this service, God, we pray that somebody would get saved. That someone who never has would call on him as their king. Lord, we pray that there's believers here in this room who have been treasonous. Lord, that they would turn and repent and return to their God and serve their King. Lord, I pray that there's anyone in this room that's looking for a church family, a church home. Lord, that we would be the station from which they serve their King. Lord, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Are you hurting and broken within? Overwhelmed by the weight of your sin? 
come to the end of yourself? Do you thirst for a drink from the well? Jesus is calling. Oh, come to the altar. The Father's arms are open wide. Forgiveness was bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Great.